Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Welcome back to What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. Are you ready for an understatement? Technology has revolutionized our lives. I know, I know, but it really has. In business, science, the arts, perhaps most impactfully in our personal daily lives, in communication and connectivity. I know I often look at this miraculous gizmo in my hand, the smartphone, that can connect me to anyone and any bit of information in the world, and I marvel at it. I am grateful for it, but I also find myself reaching for it a lot and often mindlessly. Last year, in 2019, Gallup Poll reported that 81% of us keep our smartphone near us almost all the time during waking hours. 63% said it's near them at night as well, even while they're sleeping. 52% check those phones a few times an hour or more. And young Americans are the most frequent smartphone checkers. So the volume of information, the speed with which we can get and share it, as well as get reactions, responses, engage in or receive validation or maybe confrontation, all of that has an impact on us, on our brains. Is it good? Is it bad? Are we merely adapting to this new way of living or is it changing us, changing our brains? Dr. Elias Abujade has made this a focus of his work as a clinician, an author, and clinical professor of psychiatry in Stanford's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. And he joins us on this episode of What Makes Up Your Mind. Dr. Abujadi, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for inviting me. Technology, social media, the internet, what a wealth of information, what a wealth of connectivity. Indeed. Also, what a powerful tool for good Absolutely. or for some harm. So overall, where do you come down on the use of technology in our daily lives? Well, I would say it's a mixed bag, very much so. Uh, I came to the uh, internet addiction, quote unquote, field from my research and my work in obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, at the time when the internet revolution sort of unfolded, I was already involved in obsessive compulsive disorder uh, research and uh, patients started calling our clinic describing something that, that felt compulsive about their relationship with the internet. And there was no established diagnosis at the time. And because of similarities with OCD, it made some sense that these patients would come to us. So that was my sort of introduction, if you will, to a possible internet-related psychopathology. Now, are these in the days before Twitter and Facebook? This is, this yes, is just being these on are the internet. Absolutely. Okay. This is the very early, late 90s, early 2000s uh, internet. So it was very much a big question mark as to what the effects, if any, on psychology were of this 
big new revolution that we were witnessing literally before our eyes here in Silicon Valley. So I got interested in um, the field back then, and it was very much a focus on possible negative consequences um, from uh, uh, addiction because of similarities with other established addictions that people had studied and are well recognized. But over time, I got interested in the effect on culture at large because more and more people were focusing on who met and who did not meet criteria for addiction when it was obvious to me at least, that the whole culture was being transformed. So you didn't need to meet any addiction criteria per se to feel like the internet is somehow transforming you, that you are behaving differently online. You're being more impulsive, perhaps more narcissistic, maybe more aggressive than your usual self. So I became very interested in those personality uh, traits and studied them and published a book on them. But over time, I became more and more um, sort of uh, uh, hopeless that there's any sort of turning back and these technologies are here to stay. So why not try to use them to some psychological advantage if that's if that's possible? So I got interested in the field of telepsychiatry and mm-hmm. telemedicine, basically the use of Internet-related technologies to try to offer mental health treatment in a way that increases access, uh, possibly decreases costs. So myself and a couple of colleagues in the uh, business school at Stanford and the medical school formed what was at the time the first Silicon Valley company that attempted to do video-based psychotherapy. So those were the days before Skype again. It was a very (laughs) foreign concept, but but that was sort of my foray into possible psychological benefits Mm -hmm. to this revolution. And from from there, also in the telemedicine and telepsychiatry field, I became interested in the use of virtual reality, specifically using desensitization techniques that employ virtual reality to help people get over various phobias, including OCD-related anxieties and fears. So this brings us back to the OCD origins of my work, if you will. We think of addiction as a physical thing or a physiological thing. Is there a physiological component in the brain that makes us addicted or or that we can become addicted Mm -hmm. to technology? Yeah, so in our work, we actually called it problematic internet use, but of course, Informally, everybody calls the field internet addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we called it problematic internet use, and we compared it. There were features about what we were observing that uh, looked like addiction, uh, because addiction is not addiction to substances. There's a whole field within psychiatry called behavioral addiction. So people can get addicted between quotes to gambling, for example. Other uh, less common addictions that people may, behavioral addictions that people may be less familiar with are conditions like trichotillomania or compulsive of hair pulling, uh, a skin picking disorder, all these have been considered historically behavioral addictions. And there were similarities that we observed between those mm-hmm. and this new field of problematic internet use. But there were other parallels as well. There were parallels with the field of OCD and that the behavior of repetitively going back and checking and rechecking 
email. And if you go for too long without doing that, then there's an intrusive sort of almost obsessive uh, thought mm-hmm. and, and an urge to go check. So there were similarities with OCD as well. So uh, you got similarities with behavioral addictions, similarities with obsessive compulsive disorder, and similarities with substance use So uh, really, this new field of problematic internet use that we were trying with other folks in the field, obviously, to to define had parallels with other established Mm -hmm. psychopathologies that people were familiar with. Okay. Is there an additional piece to that because of our visual use of the internet is there and i and i'm asking this because i'm thinking about or i'm wondering where in the brain this goes on and and is there an additional layer of that because we're visually addicted to or or being stimulated by web pages or this is a great question and um it's in terms of the parts of the brain the the research isn't as as evolved and as conclusive as we would like it to be. But there are certainly suggestions that uh, similar parts of the brain are implicated as in substance addiction. Uh, Similar neurotransmitters, including dopamine, are implicated as well. In terms of the visual um, aspect, I think this is a very interesting point and one that I try to connect to the interactivity of the online experience. Um, uh, You know, when when the the novels first, you know, came about in the 18th and 19th century, people were warning, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, about their dire consequences. They were going to spell the end of civilization as as we know it. The same happened with radio and subsequently TV. Mm -hmm. And it seems like with every new medium that there are these warnings that surface but i do think that with the internet it has been different and one big reason for this difference is how interactive and visually stimulating and engaging it is um, it does a very good job mimicking real life if you will if you're uh, an avid video game player, for example, the video game rewards you or, or, or punishes you. And this high interactivity, high visual involvement, I think, makes it different from previous waves of new media. And for that reason, it makes it potentially uh, riskier. And when you combine that aspect of it with the speed of technology yes. and this sort of breakneck evolution that's occurred it really makes it stand out among these successive waves of new technologies and new media forms. Then we add on the layer of social media where there's immediate response. If somebody gives you a like Absolutely. on Facebook, Absolutely. something happens to you. If somebody, if somebody doesn't or on Twitter argues with you mm-hmm. or that anonymity allows people to be aggressive, I'm guessing... Absolutely. So um, these are the the, the personality traits Mm -hmm. I was referring to earlier. You know, there's nothing new about narcissism as part of the human psyche or or, uh, aggression or impulsivity. But so much of um, culture and history and law and religion have sort of worked over the centuries and the, and the millennia 
to control some of these less healthy traits and channel them in, in more positive uh, directions. And you get something like social media or anonymous uh, uh, blogging. And there's almost like a, sh- a shortcut back to these very sort of basic traits that allows them to resurface almost automatically. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's one reason why we find narcissism being nurtured the way it is online. That's why it's so automatic and easy for us to act more aggressively, more impulsively than, uh, than we normally do in online environments. And the anonymity piece is very interesting because if obviously people don't know your identity, you will allow yourself to behave in less than regulated, safe, or polite ways. But it's hardly the only component. There's something about the lack of a hierarchy, something about mm-hmm. the invisibility that also contribute to these traits surfacing. For example, everybody is equal online, which is, you know, very good in many ways, right? Uh, when the internet first came about, it was called the perfect democracy because everybody mm-hmm. was was equal. Of course, now we think of it as a possible threat to democracy, but that's a that's yeah, another. We can talk about that in the, in <laughs> the cultural another, segment, right? That's another issue. Um, however, the fact that everybody was essentially equal and equal to the speed of their internet connection made for a very sort of informal. Uh, space. You don't get the, the normal sort of hierarchies. There's that no arbiter. Could, of, there's no arbiter. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. everybody, you know, is a journalist. Uh, there's no difference between parent and child or teacher and student. Uh, so, th- so this f- allows for a lot of freedom. And again, that can be a very good thing, but it can also allow some negative traits to surface because of this lack of arbiter and mm-hmm. lack of control. But another aspect is invisibility. You know, if you're not looking the person eye to eye, uh, even though you know who they are, you know, if you're not actually in their presence, yes. then you'll allow yourself again to behave in ways that might otherwise embarrass you. You know, this is why our texting can be you know, one reason our texting can be, again, uh, more impulsive, angrier than it is, or our emails, Mm -hmm. or, you know, any number of sort of posting activities that we do. So it's not just about anonymity, because even when our uh, identity is known, the fact that there's this invisibility can help these Mm -hmm. traits come out. For somebody listening, and I'm, I'm questioning myself now, too, how do we know if we're just, if we're addicted, in the sense of that have you just have described online addiction or technology addiction or we're just it's just a habit it's just a really maybe sometimes rude habit if you're mm-hmm. checking your email at the table or mm-hmm. ha- where is that line i'm a news junkie so yeah. i find myself uh, often when there's a lull in some activity grabbing my phone mm-hmm. and checking my twitter feed but ha- where where does that where do we cross that line yeah and i think i, I would I would advise ag- ag- against approaching it from an addiction model mm-hmm. and instead approaching it as an activity that should be one of many activities that, that the person does and that the person enjoys. Well, and sh- should I ask it then in a different way? What, when does it become, when, when does yeah. our habit or our desire to be connected online or be I- interactive online? Yeah turn into a problematic behavioral issue. And and there's no easy answer, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. to that. But I think ultimately it's about balance. It's about feeling like 
you still have some control over your online life, that your 500, you know, Facebook friends or, you know, 1,000 Twitter followers haven't interfered negatively with, you know, in-person, real-life relationships that you also want to maintain and grow and invest in. You know, I see a lot of Stanford students, actually, who um, come to me saying they're feeling very socially isolated, uh, very alone in dealing with academic and other stress, and they have these incredibly vibrant online lives with, you know, countless friends and interactions. So these are the red flags that we should increasingly inquire about Mm -hmm. as as mental health professionals and uh, look for in ourselves just as end users of these of these products. I think two things happened in the last couple of years. I think there's a broad, uh, a much broader awareness of the negative consequences that we're talking about and that, you know, I've been working on for the last several years, we've hit kind of a a point in our culture where we're much more aware of all this. Unfortunately, at the same time, we have also reached this sort of defeated point where we feel like it's too late to reverse the clock. It's too late Mm -hmm. to do anything Mm -hmm. about it. We're so we're all addicted between quotes and there's no turning back of the clock. So it's it's a it's a peculiar moment and one that we're trying to invest more research and scholarship in as a field. It seems as though what you're describing um, that hopeless feeling kind of coincides with how this technology is being used uh, politically, religiously, globally yes. as well. And regardless of which side of the spectrum one sure. falls on, there is no denying that technology is being used uh, in an immediate and vitriolic way in Absolutely. some instances. And we're all responding to that in kind. Yes. I shouldn't say all, but many are responding Most to that of in us kind. Are. Absolutely. Because what other control do we feel we have? So I'm really fascinated in your look at this, not only for individuals, but culturally. Yes, yes. And and, as you said, how it impacts a democratic way of life. Absolutely. You know, I take no pleasure in, in saying this, but the red flags have been there all along. A book that I published in 2011 had a whole chapter about how the Internet poses real threats to democracy and is a perfect recipe for demagogues to take over. The red flags have been around for all of us to see for a long time. Uh, But our love affair with these technologies was such that we really blinded ourselves to some very serious facts and when we got to the point again where we achieved that sense of awareness simultaneously we also started uh, feeling pretty hopeless about doing anything about it but uh, but I'm not of that school I, I do think that balance is still achievable and as as a field again we're 
embarking on some ways to develop really evidence-based recommendations on how to go about reaching that equilibrium that increasingly, as a culture, we say we want in our lives. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's our only way forward if we want to control some of these very scary forces that have been unleashed and are now in full display, even though, again, the warning signs have been along mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Individually, what do we do when we are online, on social media, in order to be more mindful of our own vulnerabilities to this, when we want to react to something someone said that made us angry and a response and a momentary satisfaction, mm-hmm. we could say, is as close as our thumbs mm-hmm. to our keyboard. Mm-hmm. And maybe do the microcosm and the macrocosm, you know, individually. <clears throat> is it good for us to use this as a way to vent and respond? And culturally, is it? You know, the culture is, is a reflection of the individuals, obviously. And I think what is good on the individual level in this, uh, when it comes to this issue, is also good broadly, culturally speaking. I think the number one, the the thing that has the most premium, if you will, the number one driving force for so much of our interactions is speed. You know, respond as quickly as you can, whether you're posting something online or you're checking, you're checking your, you know, a a text that you just got. You know, I, I have a, a long commute, as many people who work at Stanford do, and I'm always struck as I reach for my phone as soon as I hear a text arrive. And I know that this is, there's a very slim chance that this is an emergency text. It wasn't my pager going off. It was Mm -hmm. my personal cell phone number. And yet the temptation is so strong. And the best thing we can do is sort of build this downtime between being triggered by something on your phone or something that popped up on your social media page, build downtime, a cooling period between that trigger, that stimulus, that urge, and your response Mm -hmm. to it. It's not easy, and one reason it's not easy has to do with neurotransmitters like dopamine and other things we've touched on, uh, but, but it, it is a necessary ingredient, I think, for, again, controlling some of these uh, negative traits and some of these forces that we've been talking about. Well, one has to train oneself, but an immediate response is also expected by the person Absolutely. texting or emailing on the other end because that's... Absolutely. Their dopamine is triggered or their... Absolutely. But this is how you also teach the other person that you're interacting with as well. Uh, uh, Part of what we're doing together is teaching one another to tolerate this sort of delay, if you will. And technology actually can help with that, which (laughs) brings us back (laughs) to our telepsychiatry and, and telemedicine conversation earlier, because one of the really uh, hot areas of of research now, and one area I've been involved in, I have written about, is basically using technology against itself, using apps 
to wean us off apps. It's <laughs> counterintuitive, <laughs> but we're so reliant on these technologies that this has to be, I think, one ingredient in this approach. So there are apps now that turn your smartphone into a dumb phone, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, they take away these sort of shiny things that we, uh, alerts that we respond to, that they that will deactivate your phone if you're driving, that will put a limit on your social media use so that if you go beyond, you know, two hours, then your Instagram account is essentially paralyzed. So these are possibilities and encouraging ones, actually, that I think can be incorporated into this, uh, into developing an approach to control some of these negative issues we've yeah. been talking about. That's interesting, turning your phone back into a dumb phone. So, you know, you arrange then, I'm assuming, you could say, all right, if something's an emergency, friends and family, call me. Right, right. Don't put it on a text because then I won't, neither one of us will be forced to constantly be looking at our phones. Absolutely. We talked about the little dopamine burst when we are using our eyes and mm -hmm. video and moving parts and, and that content habit. But what psychologically is it about humans and the internet, especially social media, where we need to be seen or we want to be seen, where we're willing to post pictures of ourselves and mm -hmm. our children and our lunches mm -hmm. and what is it about us psychologically? You know, just to to highlight this point, I'm struck by a comment that um, a student told me that when she goes to a restaurant now, she will or order not necessarily what she wants to eat and what she feels like, but what what looks good on Instagram. Really? I was struck by that, but to me, it summarized this whole question and the point you were you were raising. And ultimately, it's, I think, about inventing a parallel identity, an avatar that we present to the world that may be happier, uh, more accomplished, better looking, uh, etc, than what we have going on in real life. And this need, this desire to reinvent ourselves is a very powerful human motive, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, the solution doesn't necessarily have to be a parallel identity that's divorced from how we really live, but the internet made it, and social media made it feel like this very ancient desire, this very ancient motive has become very achievable. And for a lot of people, unfortunately, it's easy to get lost in this new reinvented identity. And when you get likes and all sorts of, you know, counters that, uh, that are reinforcing mm -hmm. um, this reinvention process, it becomes difficult to control and it becomes difficult to to give up and it becomes difficult to resist the temptation to make our whole life basically about that, about mm -hmm. how we present ourselves. To yeah. I'm assuming it crowds out the development of self-evaluation if we're looking mm -hmm. to our social media accounts for followers or likes or mm -hmm. responses for validation from outside and from people who don't know us. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then the question becomes like, what is our real self? I mean, a, a lot of people increasingly define themselves by their online footprint. You know, this is this is who you are. You know, mm -hmm. the, who you are is what the other person sees. The first thing they see when they look you up. This is this is what defines you. And it's hard not to start believing that mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah. And I think if you're a digital native or if you're, you know, you're growing up in a world where you never knew life before Google, it's it's hard to make the counter argument to mm -hmm. that. Right. You know? And at the same time, in schools, we're not really teaching mindfulness. We're starting. We're yeah. starting. But I'm guessing that that kind of an education would aid in, as a generation grows up, aid in being able to, to determine what's right. real inside us and what's not. Right. Absolutely. And this touches on another force that's now kind of being questioned a little bit. But, you know, 10 years ago, it was all about making sure every kid in the classroom has an iPad or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of yes. that this love affair that we we're talking about was very much also being incorporated into education. When you look at the most successful educational uh, systems in the world as assessed by uh, PISA, which is this sort of international test that many countries have their students take at around age 15 or so, um, when you look at the best performing countries and cultures, th they tend to be educational systems where there's been kind of a healthy dose of suspicion around mm -hmm. incorporating heavy technology in, in the classroom. But this wasn't our approach here in the last uh, few years. Well, let's talk about demographics then of yeah. susceptibility sure. to a habit that's a problem of internet use. Are young developing brains more susceptible? I would presume that it's a it's a boon for folks who are um, maybe unable to get out of their homes or for the elderly because it's such a, a great connective tool. Absolutely. Their brains are set, but I don't know, does it have <coughs> an impact on dementia? Yeah. No? So it's it's a it's a very interesting question and it's one that's still being heavily um, Debated. A lot of the research has understand and understandably focused on so-called digital natives because, you know, they're the the generation with the still very much developing brain and the generation that uh, did not know life before these technologies. But it would be a mistake to think that these traits and these consequences that we're discussing are limited to this generation. Mm -hmm. They really are there across the age spectrum. I think with young individuals and kids today, uh, attention deficit is something that has been studied pretty closely and one problem that appears to show up in many studies in terms of the relationship between a technology-reliant lifestyle like the lifestyle they have, and an increase in attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. In terms of a possible link with autism, this is still a question mark. It really hasn't been established. There are some interesting questions that make some sense in terms of 
you know, if, if the screen becomes your main relationship, what does this do to your ability to relate to others, which is, of course, a deficit sure. in, in autism. But again, it hasn't been proven. A lot of focus also on video games among kids, again, uh, understandably so. However, video games are really a very popular pastime across the age spectrum. Yes. And w- whether they're problematic or not, it wouldn't be an issue that's strictly relevant to children. One interesting thing that has happened is a certain reversal when it comes to parenting because parents (laughs) are increasingly reliant on children in all technology matters. It used to be that the parent knew more essentially about everything. Well, when it comes to technology, it may not be the case. And this has produced a certain uh, reversal and speaks also to this equality and and democracy between quotes. The power structure has been shifted. (laughs) Right, right. With real consequences when it comes to parenting. Yes, absolutely. The persuasive power, I mean, any type of media has always had a, a huge ability to persuade. Yes. But the power to persuade, for better or for ill, yes. is so incredibly ratcheted up with That's social right. media and with the Internet. So as a psychiatrist, the flow of information and the quality of information can have such an impact on those susceptible. It's a great question. Would, would real clinical implications for us psychiatrists and psychologists. I see that increasingly in patients with diagnoses of some form of of psychosis, where there's a delusion that's clearly false and deserves to be confronted. And whatever that out there belief is, if the person goes Online, they will find an entire community that shares that belief with them. And the belief becomes reinforced and becomes more difficult for you as a provider to argue against it or to warn about it and about its consequences because the person is having this belief again um, uh, uh, reinforced in. in, 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 in the virtual world. So so the power of persuasion and the power uh, and the persuasion that comes from having people agree with you um, can be a dangerous thing if you hold a radical view, whatever that view may be. You know, people don't go online to become moderate, unfortunately. They go right. online and whether they are seeking it or not, they're more radical beliefs, um, whatever they are, will be reinforced. And this is one reason, in my opinion, something I've written about, uh, why we have the kind of the cultural divisions and cultural polarization that we have. So for something that was called a global village that was going to bring everyone together in one happy place, the end result unfortunately, increasingly seems to be a reinforcing of divisions and all sorts of segregations. For those susceptible, either by a mental health issue or inexperience, we need to look at some protections. So for the rest of us, doesn't the responsibility fall on us to be smart consumers? 
Yes, I think we have to be smart consumers of these technologies, but I think the field is far from being a level right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's very difficult if you're a lone consumer fighting for something like online privacy, for example. You're not going to be able to get to get far. You need you need protections. Mm -hmm. You need legislation. You need the government telling those who hold your most personal, most private data that this data is not yours to manipulate and sell and trade mm -hmm. as you wish. And for much of the life of the internet, it's been very much of an uphill battle trying to fight for something like you know privacy protections, mm -hmm. just to focus on that one example. Europe and other countries have been ahead, but not, not by much. You know, in the U.S., a lot of internet interactions are, are still governed by something called the Communications Decency Act that dates to 1996. We need to update yes. these laws yeah. because certainly technology is not frozen in time. And with things like facial recognition mm -hmm. now available to be used and abused, it's really high time for our laws to start catching up. To wrap up, yeah. let me ask you this. Uh, now that we're finished, you've been offline for more than half an hour talking to me. Are you going to check your... You're a doctor, so you kind of have to. But it, are you aware of that impulse? Is, and is that what we should be looking Absolutely. at ourselves? And I will be checking, not just because I'm a doctor, but because I'm a human being like everybody else, just as enamored and entrapped and addicted, if you will, to these tools as everybody else is. All right. Well, then we can all feel a little bit better about ourselves. <laughs> Dr. Abijadi, thank you so much. Thank you, Jane. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Dr. Elias Abujade is an author, clinician, clinical professor of psychiatry at Stanford's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and you'll find a link to his work in our podcast notes. Thank you so much for joining us. Please come back for our next installment of What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind, Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University.